0: This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from The Cyberwire. Thanks for joining us for episode 23 of the Recorded Future podcast. Our guest today is Mike Cole. He's a cyber threat intelligence analyst with a large metropolitan police department and a member of the United States Coast Guard Reserve, supporting maritime search and rescue and law enforcement around New York City. He's also an award-winning, best-selling author of fantasy fiction, perhaps best known for his Shadow Ops series of novels, combining military action with magic and sorcery. And if that weren't enough, he's also featured in the new CBS reality TV series, Hunted, where he's one of an elite team of fugitive hunters. A quick program note, there is some salty language in this episode, so consider yourself warned. Stay with us.
0: You know, it's funny. I come to IT into to cyber um, by a really strange route. I have a master's degree in museum studies, and I was raised... To be an academic and a and an athlete, my mom actually raised me to believe that I'm bad at math, uh, and unfortunately, kids believe what their parents tell them, right? Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I wanted to get married and uh, I decided that you know I needed to make money, and this was right in the IT boom when Clinton was calling for people to go into the field, and uh, and you know if you had a heartbeat and a brain, you could get a job. So I taught myself HTML uh, 4.0 out of a book, and then lied on my resume. Uh, a friend of mine uh had a ran a law firm and uh, i asked him can i say i designed your website i hadn't designed his website but of course i had the skills to and from that i leveraged myself onto a help desk at the pentagon and, th- and the effort here was not because i loved it it was because i wanted to make money uh and the irony of all this is based on that lie and that um lying on my resume that first position i actually got a secret clearance <laughs> got myself into the <laughs> pentagon but you know hey uh at the risk of sounding atistical, I'm good at stuff. Yeah. And by the time the um, smoke cleared, uh, I was the head of electronic messaging at the Department of Education. And then 9-11 hit. And I don't know if you remember, but everybody wanted to get in the fight. Everybody. You could do it one of two ways, right? Um, you could try to go through the federal government hiring process, which is horrendously broken, and it takes, you know, one to two years, sometimes longer, to get hired. Or briefly, because of the panic after the towers came down, the country kind of went crazy and started letting people, you know, private contractors, really, let's use the correct term, mercenaries, these are private armies, do all kinds of jobs that they shouldn't be doing, including war fighting and, and spying. And so I got clear to start, you know, leveraging my IT skills um, to help design operating systems and make adjustments to operating systems. But then I realized once I was inside the intelligence community that all anybody cares about is the clearance. They don't care what you can do. And I thought, well, why would I be a computer guy when I could be a spy? And so I took a $27,000 a year pay cut to move sideways from IT into operations, went through private boot camp, and retrained myself um, as a targeting officer and interrogator, went downrange to Iraq, um, learned all that fun stuff. Later on, I think, since I had a boots on the ground counterterrorism background, and i had the it skills the logical nexus of the two is was working in cyber intelligence especially as that field was evolving and i start and then i felt bad about the fact that i was a mercenary i felt bad about the fact that i was essentially war profiteering so i wanted to go federal so i did two things one is i joined the military i did it backwards right Hmm. (laughs) most people get out of the military and then go into you know it contracting I, I, i went backwards my my I'm one of the few people in this field whose salary has steadily declined over time <laughs> uh, I wound up doing working in um, cTA five which is the cyber threat analysis center at um, the Defense Intelligence Agency now as a federal employee so that was that trajectory at the same time I never left my nerd roots. I grew up i think like a lot of i t people uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons and reading comic books and you know being unable to get a date no matter how hard i tried and um reading fantasy novels. Um, it isn't only until the last few years that IT has become cool enough that, you know, the jocks are getting into it. And uh, I never gave up that dream of, of being a writer, never. Uh, it was always what I wanted to do because it was what I grew up on. And the, the, <laughs> the funny thing is, is at the time, I was um, uh, running uh, a major program at the Office of Naval Intelligence, and I just soured on the intelligence mission because, look, I'm not an idiot. I understand that intelligence is, is a critical part of how countries function. But it's a dirty business. And the reality of it is is that at its core, the mission of an intelligence service is to break the laws of other countries and steal their, steal their stuff. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, and I was really souring on it. Plus, I think running counterterrorism missions and particularly um, being a, an interrogator, custodial debriefer, um really broke my spine in that regard being in a prison environment seeing what we were doing um, really made it tough for me ethically to continue in the field and i was looking for a way out and i told my my best friend uh peter v brett who is a pretty famous um fantasy novelist if you're into uh, fantasy you you probably know who he is i told him look man if if i ever get a book deal i'm gonna sell everything and quit everything and i'm gonna move to new york city and and money doesn't matter and i'm gonna live in a crappy apartment and be a writer (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I said that, of course, thinking that that would never happen because here I was, you know, being groomed for the senior executive service, um, in a corner office in, uh, at the, at ONI. And of course, then the book deal did happen. And I called Pete and Pete's like, all right, Mike, you said you were going to sell everything and move to New York. And, um,
1: <laughs> at this and, point, uh, do, do you have a family or are you, are you no, no. still or?
0: No, I told you I could never get a date. I could get, you know, <laughs> okay. um, uh, and I said, uh, I said, uh, yeah i know i said that but i mean this is really scary and he goes dude you, you, you gotta put your money where your mouth is hmm. so i dropped i sold everything i quit everything i moved to new york city and i wrote full-time for two years and then i discovered that um you know i could make a living but it wasn't a good one and hmm. it's one thing to um i think in your youth go from you know being a poor college kid to transitioning into an artist it's another thing to go from being a gs-14 and having all of that, you know, those comforts and that security net that that kind of financial background gives you and then be a full time writer living in a, you know, beat up apartment in Brooklyn, you know, getting jumped on the street because you live in a bad neighborhood. Like it was it was pretty stressful. Right. So I, um, I thought, all right, well, I need to go back to work. And amazingly enough, I mean, I thought two years out of the workforce, forget it but um my background i guess appealed and i was very very fortunate that the police picked me up and now um i'm part of a defensive unit which uh you know this is one of the probably only police department in the world that has that is large enough to have this kind of specialization all we do is defend the department if you rob a bank with a computer we don't care we're only going to get involved if you attack the department itself and then So my life is now stabilized, and I think, all right, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do cyber threat intel during the day. I'm going to write at night. This is great. And um, I get a call out of nowhere from CBS asking me if I want to be on a TV show. So this is the thing. I didn't realize this is that they were doing a TV show called Hunted, which is a reality show where people hunt fugitives and fugitives, you know, try to get away. And if they can for 28 days, they get a quarter of a million dollars in the manhunting world there's really two fields there's um fugitive recovery which is you know law enforcement it's you know guys skip out on their warrants or whatever and you go get them mm-hmm. and you bring them to justice and then there's counterterrorism targeting um which is uses almost all of the same tcps tactics techniques and procedures but the the ugly reality of it is is usually we're, we're not bringing them to justice we're killing them um, we may try to bring them in for interrogation but generally you're pushing a button on somebody. The manhunting aspect of it is pretty equivalent. I guess when they made the show, they decided that they were gonna go out and find sort of 50% fugitive recovery people and 50% percent counterterrorism targeters. And I guess they started asking around uh, in DC for who the, the people with the reputations uh, to do that work and my name came up, which completely unbeknownst to me. So I literally got a call out of nowhere Ask me if I want to be on a TV show. And can I, can I curse on this show?
1: Um, sure.
0: So my first words when I'm on the phone uh, with the CBS producer, you know, you want to be on a TV show. We're like, fuck you. Like, I completely <laughs> did not believe that it was real. And of course, you know, by the time I, I got a plane ticket, and they're flying me out to L.A. to meet the president of CBS. I was like, oh, my God. So I literally fell backwards into being on TV. And right now, so now I have this bizarre triple life where, you know, cyber threat intel is a huge piece of my life. I love it. It's a fascinating part of the field. It's, it's never fascinating part of law enforcement, and it's an intelligence, and it's never been more important than it is now. And you can't help but look at the news and see. And at the same time, um, I'm writing uh, spare seconds, and then at the same time. Uh, Hunted is wrapped, and I'm auditioning for other TV, TV roles, which may be coming up in the future.
1: How do you balance your time between the three? How do you set priorities?
0: So this is the thing is I don't. You asked me before if I had anybody, um, and the answer is no. And part of the reasoning for that is um, my life is wildly out of balance. Uh, I work from the moment my eyes open in the morning to the moment they close at night. I have no hobbies that do not connect directly to these three pursuits. I think I'm very fortunate in that like, I understand that that a lot of people might hear that and go, Oh, my God, that sounds like hell. Um, But it isn't, because the three things that I'm doing are really fascinating and awesome. I don't know if I like these platitudes that like, you know, you have to live life out of balance, and you have to take downtime. And where does it say that in the manual? Like, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that life is made up. I think that nothing is inevitable. And I think we get to define what it is for ourselves. And I am very, very fortunate to have these really extraordinary avenues in my life, and I, I'm not prepared to give up on any of them.
1: Tell me about uh, the 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 analyst side of your life. What's your day to day like when you're when you're uh, attacking that part of your life?
0: I think that um, cyber threat intelligence is a weird and multivariate discipline. I think on the one hand, um, there's a kinetic, what I call a kinetic aspect to it, which is the straight-up intelligence portion of it. Um, people have to understand who threat actors are. They have to understand what, where conversations are being held. They have to understand what the community of malevolent actors is, what communities there are. And all of this is non-technical. And what it involves is almost like running a beat. You have to spend a lot of time frankly, reading and researching and being in the field. You have to understand what colloquialisms and lingos are being used. You have to understand what forms people are hanging out on. You have to understand um, what is motivating threat actors to do what they do. And in order to understand those things, there's no way around it. You have to be hip deep in it. Um, that's absolutely critical, but and I say this all the time, cyber is computers. It is nothing else, it is computers. And the moment a cyber threat intelligence analyst starts prioritizing the intelligence aspect of it above the technology, they're wrong, and they're gonna suck. And this is one of the biggest problems in the field right now, is that people emphasize the word intelligence and forget the word cyber. So a huge amount of your time has got to be spent keeping up your chops in terms of technology. You need to know Cisco IOS. You need to understand Windows Active Directory. You need to understand how traffic is flowing intimately through the OSI model. Um, you need to be sniffing traffic and looking at and you know statefully decrypting packets and being able to interpret that information. If your eyes aren't bleeding because you're reviewing log files, uh, you're doing it wrong. So it's labor intensive, but it becomes less so as long as you're constantly maintaining that, that stuff. So. I'm very fortunate in my job that I have a cool blend of investigative work, which satisfies both of those aspects and the need to produce intelligence products, which satisfies that sort of kinetic piece of it, but also operational work and an operational component, a technical component to my investigations, which keeps my tech chops up. So it's really important, I think, that, um, and I'm fortunate in this position, and I would encourage other cyber threat intel analysts in, in different positions to make sure that they're hitting both sides of that coin.
1: What about the the role of automation and technology, you know, particularly as uh, as, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, which are certainly um, popular buzzwords these days, but also useful technology? It seems to me like they can help take some of the load away from that purely technical side and free up the humans to do that work that requires, for lack of a better word, intuition. Do you agree with that?
0: I do very strongly, and in fact, I think that anyone in IT is in the business of putting themselves out of a job, and should be if they're doing it responsibly and well. Anytime um, anyone who has a fear of automation, and amazingly enough, you see a lot of people in IT, especially in IT services and support, um, you know, the operations people, help us people, but that's the wrong attitude because the reality of it is is that at least for the foreseeable future this kind of high-tech stuff will require human interface to do well and, or simply you'll put yourself out of one job and retrain for another because um there's enough of a broad base in technology skills uh, for example if you understand theoretically how the osi model works right if you understand theoretically how data flows you're going to be able to pivot from proprietary technology to proprietary technology no matter what becomes obsolete so being afraid of automation is, in my opinion, never really acceptable um, uh, in IT personnel. And the reality of it is, is, you know, a lot of people will say that big data is bullshit. Um, the noted futurist Cory Doctorow, and I really encourage your listeners out there to be um, reading his articles. He's also, by the way, a science fiction writer and, and uh, a major heavy hitter uh, in the field. He said, he's noted for saying that um, big data is bullshit. But he's wrong, uh, and I. This is. I'm saying this about one of my heroes. Big data is not bullshit. Big data is absolutely a um, way we're getting things done. And as those factors, and as that big data increases, you need um, automation to crunch that and make meaning fall out of it that humans can then interpret. Um, I don't know if folks are familiar with Sticks Taxi. Sticks Taxi is a sort of universal protocol used to categorize cyber threats that um i think was invented by the miter corporation is currently being pushed by uh multiple branches of government and it's a great idea because it allows us to share cyber threats across multiple verticals you know i don't know stuff that's happening with ip addresses but also stuff that's happening with specific um individuals or specific threat groups and it's a way to sort of categorize all that information and get it fed out to various um feeds on an automated basis well once you have that, that's big data, man. That's a lot of information, and there is no way that a security operations center with 20 personnel, you know, or, or less, as many organizations have, can hand jam all that information. That information has to be ingested into devices, so those devices can make smart decisions about what to block, what to allow, what to warn on, and it has to be happening in real time. And there's no way a thousand humans couldn't do that. It must be automated. But it also must be curated and analyzed, and in and in all cases, automation is going to make mistakes. There's no such thing as perfect automation, and you need that human oversight and that human analysis both to interact when false positives occur, to uh, intervene and take action uh, on more sophisticated and complex scenarios where um, where automated logic isn't sufficient. One of those a perfect example of that is. In law enforcement investigations, um, you can't have a computer making a decision about, you know, how to uh, preserve chain of evidence um, because a computer can't go to court and testify. Hmm.
1: You know, as a, it strikes me that um, you know you are an award-winning and best-selling author. um, And in order to write compelling characters, you have to be able to put yourselves in the mindset of the characters that you're writing. And I wonder how that informs your abilities as an analyst to be able to put yourself in the mindset of uh, of your adversaries.
0: I'm really glad you asked that question Um, because it's something I think that it's an issue actually I kind of campaign on, Um, especially in law enforcement and intelligence and the military. and It applies to cyber. Look, cyber is an incredibly analytical field, right? We are attempting to interpret and understand machines and think like machines all the time. Uh, And that necessarily takes you out of a human mindset. And then you marry that to the law enforcement and intelligence field. You know what we call the people, our adversaries in every police department and in almost every intelligence agency? We call them bad guys. And that's an incredibly judgmental position to take. It's necessary because you can't be worrying about your adversary's relationship with their mother if you're going to you know, have to do the hard work of, of you know, prosecuting them or if you're in kinetic law enforcement you know, literally putting cuffs on them and dragging them off. So I'm not saying that that kind of snap judgment isn't necessary, but it is a roadblock, and it does hold you back, because behind those computers are people, and people have human motivations. Let me give you a corollary in fantasy fiction, Um, one that maybe a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, is um, George R. R. Martin's famous series, A Song of Ice and Fire. Which has been reinterpreted by HBO into the hit television show Game of Thrones, which I'm sure pretty much everybody listening to this podcast has seen. If, if they haven't, they're, they're living under a rock, I guess. <laughs> um, so George R. R. Martin is famous for evoking George R. Martin. If you meet him, he's a you know older, overweight white guy. Um, grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey. I think we can all safely say that he's not a dwarf like Tyrion Lannister, and that he's not a haughty, you know, noble queen like Cersei Lannister, right? Um, And yet he evokes these characters so convincingly that they resonate so realistically with an audience. Like it's it's amazing. It's like he knows them. And when people try to dissect, how is it that he's able to do that so well as a writer? And my answer is he's he's empathetic is that he's able to step outside his own preconceived notions and judgments of the world and into the shoes of someone who's utterly unlike them in a sympathetic manner. And that enables him to understand their goals. Now, think about that. Obviously, that has utility in fiction because it enables us to make realistic characters. But it also has utility in law enforcement and intelligence because when you can step into The mindset of an adversary and understand their goals intimately, you'll be able to move one step ahead of them. If you understand that the motivation of a hacker is to do something for the lulls or to do something because they're ideologically sympathetic to to ISIS, but not the same as ISIS, well, I mean, that's a very, very different set of actions. Um, This is one of the things that always frustrated the heck out of me when I was working CT. I can't remember the name of the um, head of FBI CT who famously said to to um congress uh that uh he looked for leadership skills whatever that means in his counterterrorism agents because a bombing was a bombing a murder was a murder he didn't think anybody needed to know arabic or anything about islam and i you know i want to choke the guy um because (laughs) it's that's exactly the opposite of what's correct right um is that The bad guys that we're judging, they have motivations, and those motivations can serve as predictors for their actions. And if you marry a real knowledge of the technology that they're using and an understanding of what's making them tick and an empathetic and a sympathetic, yes, a sympathetic understanding of what makes them tick. I'm not saying you should betray your organization and assist a bad guy. What I'm saying is you should be able to understand what makes them tick, because it will help you stay one step ahead of them, and one of the watchwords in fiction, one of the of the aphorisms you'll always hear us saying is that everyone is the hero of their own story.
1: Mm. What, just to give me an overview. What is the place of threat intelligence from your point of view? How do you dial it in? How do you know? How do you choose what you want to use, what you want to ignore? And then how do you use that along the spectrum of tools that you use uh, in your day-to-day work?
0: Um, I think that um, threat intelligence and this is where we talked before you talked before about the risks of automation versus human interaction right threat intelligence especially cyber threat intelligence exists across this broad range of verticals right it can be uh, it can be uh, anywhere and all of these verticals have different intelligence needs and different threats and concerns I defending um, a police department uh, have different intelligence uh, requirements than, say, computer crimes, which is focused on fighting computer crime that doesn't necessarily threaten a police department. A bank would have different requirements, a power utility, a government organization, recorded future itself, who I'm sure has a security operations center and has to defend itself. And here's where the human role comes in. We have to be able to know what the intelligence requirements of our organization are, have those requirements be driven by the operational commanders and policymakers in our organization, the people in the C-suite, and then interpret that into real technical requirements that we can leverage tools like Recorded Future to produce the technical factors, the technical indicators we can use to, um, to defend our networks uh examples uh you know include you know i don't i know um, taking all the ip addresses in your organization and building those as use cases um in recorded future so that if it pops up on zone h well i I guess it's not zone h anymore pops up on some dark web forum you're going to be alerted but that's something that has to be tailored to your organization and it's something that um, you need a human to do But notice that I'm mentioning specific technical factors here. But in cyber threat intelligence, the focus has to be on the technical. Cyber is computers. Um, And more often than not, when you're dealing with information assurance and computer network defense, who did it doesn't really matter. What matters is the technical indicators of compromise that can be leveraged to proactively defend the network. There's a lot of those out there and uh, marrying your requirements Uh, to that information and using tools like RF to basically turn over every stone on an automated basis, something no human can ever do and get that information back to you so you can act on it is that's a sweet spot.
1: I want to ask you about creativity, because I think particularly in a lot of, uh, of technical fields, and obviously you know, cybersecurity is one of them, you, I will often hear people say, I'm, I'm just not creative. How do you people in the arts, how, do you, how are you so creative? And my response typically to them is, well, no, you're, everyone is creative. Creativity is problem solving, in, in my opinion. I'm wondering, what is your take on that?
0: It's bullshit, um, and I and I um, it's and it's an excuse, uh, and I don't have a lot of patience for it. Hmm. Um, the prog rock band uh, in the 80s, Boston, you ever heard of them? Oh, sure. Um, you know they're all math guys from MIT, right? Right. Um, uh, my good friend who's a, 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 a VP – well, the title isn't VP. They, they use some wacky term at Spotify, but she's an engineering manager at Spotify. Um, and she is a major heavy-hitting cellist. Like, she's the cellist that when the Lumineers are playing Madison Square Garden, they're going to call her to come play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no coincidence that, especially in math and in the arts, if you, if you look across all of the verticals into the arts, you're going to see tons of engineers and tons of mathematicians in the field. Because you're exactly right. Is that creativity is kind of a, what is that? How do you quantify that? It's a BS, you know, buzzword. It's, it's like the word talent. It's this thing that we assume exists and nobody can prove that it exists, right? Hmm. Um, So I think that creation um, and the making of art is really, really scary because the reality of it is is that if you go to a job and you're just kind of fulfilling a role and doing what's expected of you, um, yeah, I guess you could do a good job or, or a bad job, but you're not doing something unique that accrues to you and has your name and face on it and then putting it out in front of an audience to be judged, right? That's what you do when you make art. I write a book. You make a painting. You write a song. But my book says Mike Cole on the cover, and it's got a picture of me on the back. And if it sucks, it's on me and only me. And believe me, this is the age of Twitter and social media, and people are not nice. When your work sucks, you're going to hear about it. Not only are you going to hear about it, the whole world's going to hear about it. And people are not gentle. And that's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to go out on a limb and put that out there. So it's a lot easier for people to say, oh, I'm just not creative. Um, than it is to face that risk. When I put on my more sympathetic hat, I get it, man. I'm scared, too. I'm scared all the time. I'm scared every time that I um, produce a work of art, but I'm also scared when I take a novel position at work and when I champion a a theory or a case or produce an intelligence product. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I don't believe there is a cyber caliphate. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. I think the cyber caliphate, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, is a um, set of strategic goals that is put out by ISIS-aligned sympathetic actors and that anyone can pick up and use, much in the same way as that I don't really believe there's a hacker collective called Anonymous. It's a set of strategic goals with no corporate infrastructure. These positions that I'm telling you right now are not popular. Um, And when I write to that, and speak passionately to that, often to high-ranking people. You know, we're talking chiefs, and uh, when I when I was still in the military uh, community and intelligence community, up to uh, assistant secretary of defense level consumers of my work, um, that is creative. It is my name on that product, and I am taking a, um, a, a contrary view because I believe in it. So I think that the issue isn't a lack of creativity, and people, I'm not bashing you here, it's a lack of courage, and uh, I don't say that to shame you, and I don't say that to bash you. I, I say it to push you uh, and push you in the direction of a, a more extraordinary life. Life, like art, is best when you risk. And uh, I think that there's a place for that risk, not just in the arts, but in what we do as cyber threat intelligence people.
1: Our thanks to Mike Cole for joining us. You can learn more about his work on his website, mikecole.com. That's M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E dot com. He's also on Twitter, at Mike Cole. He's also one of the scheduled keynote speakers at Recorded Future's upcoming R Fun Conference. More on that in a moment don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. And remember to save the date for Our Fun, the sixth annual threat intelligence conference coming up in October in Washington, D.C., attendees will gain valuable insight into threat intelligence best practices by hearing from industry luminaries, peers, and recorded future experts. The details are at recordedfuture.com/rfun. That's r f u n. I'm planning on being there. We're actually going to do an episode of the Cyberwire from the show. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online.